0: welcome you back to our series called The Way of Jesus, um, which is a series I wanted to do immediately following Easter Sunday. Um, Easter, you know, the resurrection of Jesus being the central event that really launched the movement known as Christianity. What I like to do every year is a series right after Easter that that seeks to answer the question, what is Christianity? And that's exactly what this series is all about. Now, obviously, uh, no one is more qualified to answer that question than the founder of Christianity himself, Jesus Christ. And thankfully for us, he did that in a teaching that he gave um, during his time here that's famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're spending, I think it's going to be about eight or nine weeks in total uh, just looking at various parts of that series. So this morning is actually the third week now that we're looking at it. And it, uh, in case you missed or you just forgot the first two weeks, I just wanted to real quickly recap because what, what the first two weeks of, of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, what they basically served to function as is the, uh, the introduction. And they both told us what Christianity is not. Sometimes, you know, before you can really understand what something is, you have to understand what it's not. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' introduction in uh, Luke's gospel account, where Jesus explains that Christianity is not the same as the world. It's probably the first and most basic thing to understand if you want to understand what this lifestyle known as Christianity is. It's not the same as the world. It's built on a value system that is completely at odds with the value system of the world. Last week, however, we looked at how Jesus explained that Christianity is also not the same as religion. It might, on the surface, a religious person and a Christian might occasionally look similar in the sense that they do a lot of the same things, but underneath the surface they could not be any further apart. So uh, we talked about that Christianity is not uh, the same as the world, it's not the same as religion, but today we're we're kind of entering a new part of this series that we're going to be in uh, basically until we conclude. Because from here on out, Uh, We're getting real topical. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly topical sermon, and we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about all these particular areas of life that we're all dealing with. And today, we're going to hit the ground running by talking about the sexual ethic of Jesus. I thought that's what you'd say. I'm in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. Um, If you're new to this church, if you're new to Christianity, um, this is a real tough one to wrap your head around because um, it's talking about lust. It's talking about hell. Um, It seems to be incredibly narrow-minded, and like it has a very overtly negative view of sex. And so I I figured, smartest way to approach this one, let's just address the elephant in the room on the front end. Uh, On the surface, one of the most unattractive aspects of Christianity um, is its view of sex. I suspect that for a great number of people in our culture, a culture that is just absolutely obsessed with sexual expression. I suspect that for a lot of people, Christianity's view of sex is what causes them to dismiss the belief system in its entirety. It's just one of those sort of, let me stop you right there. There's no way that a modern person can actually believe that, and, and they don't even bother investigating the rest of it. And even for Christians, I know that, that for, I think it's safe to say for most of the people that listen to this teaching, you, if Jesus says it, that's good enough for you, and you believe it. But even with that, you know, I think if we're honest... Uh, every Christian kind of quietly hates, you know, the, the, the dreaded moment when somebody asks you, so what do you, do you, you actually believe that kind of stuff about, you know, sex outside of marriage and all that kind of stuff? It's just a very, it, it's especially the way that our culture is is becoming and is already so secular, it's just, it's one of those moments where Christianity is increasingly at odds with the culture around us. All that being said, if... If you are willing to look beneath the surface of Christianity, which that's what this whole teaching is going to be about, if you're willing to get beneath the surface, to get beneath the immediate offense and the shock value of what Jesus says here, I think you'll find that not only does the Christian understanding of human sexuality, not only does it make sense, but it's, it's just far better in every way than all the alternatives, and it's it's an ethic and it's a, it's a standard that would create a society that would be better for everybody. And if you give me about 30 minutes, I'm going to try to prove it to you. So based on what Jesus says here, um, is really just three kind of moves to this teaching that I want to walk you through. First off, I want to talk about what lust is not, which may surprise you. Secondly, I want to talk about what lust actually is. And then thirdly, um, we're going to talk about how it's healed. Uh, how, how its power can be broken over us. So first off, let's talk about what lust is not. This is going to be our first main idea today. <clears throat> Number one, lust is not the same as sexual desire. That's what the 9 a.m. said as well. It's amazing. Uh, in this passage, Jesus is not saying that sexual desire is wrong, Because the Bible does not teach that. In fact, uh, when you survey what the Bible has to say about sexuality, the Bible talks about it in such an overwhelmingly positive light that it will probably make you feel uncomfortable. And rather than just saying that, let me prove it and make you feel uncomfortable. I want to read two passages from the Old Testament book that has made many a high schooler giggle, known as the Song of Solomon. I am going somewhere with this, so just stay with me. Uh, Song of Solomon is a book, it, it's basically, it's an entire book in the Bible that's dedicated to celebrating sexual love between a husband and wife. So I'm going to read first a, um, a little snippet of the husband speaking to his wife, and then the wife uh, speaking to her husband. So in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, you have the husband looking at his wife. Uh, By the way, they're both naked. And this is, thank you for that. (laughs) And it says, Your stature, class, please. Your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. You don't need to be a Hebrew scholar <laughs> to get where that's going, okay? Two chapters before that, in chapter 5, we have now the wife speaking to her husband. And in verses 11 through 16, I'll kind of skim through them. It says, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His body is an ivory panel covered with sapphires. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. An Old Testament professor commenting on this passage um, referred to it as, and he's absolutely right, what you have here, this is, quote, barefaced rejoicing in sexual joy. Let me pause for just a moment here. Uh, In case you can't tell by my body language or tone of voice or whatever vibes I'm emitting this morning, I am not comfortable doing this. Um, And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you are probably not comfortable watching me do this. (laughs) So that raises the question, what are you doing it for, Pastor Ryan? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. There are two really common um, misconceptions about sex in our culture that are rampant, And they have led to just an absolutely untold amount of dysfunction, disillusionment, and and turmoil in people's lives. And uh, I think it's safe to say, and I'd ask yourself to just search yourself as we walk through this, because I'm going to return to it more than once today. I think it's safe to say that everybody who listens to this teaching has been probably more influenced than you even realize by one of these misconceptions about sex. One of them, on one end of the spectrum, is what you, you can call the prudish view of sex. The other is the pagan view. Let me walk through that real quick. The, the prudish view of sex basically sees sex as kind of fundamentally dirty. Maybe it's a necessary evil in order to continue the survival of the human race, but it's kind of gross. It's kind of taboo. This kind of mindset is really common in people who were raised in extremely religious conservative, strict, more fundamentalist homes where the overall messaging, whether it was said or it was communicated in nonverbal ways, is that sex is basically this kind of dirty, shameful thing. But then the moment you get married, it's the greatest thing in the world. What a lot of people have experienced, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to me right now have personally experienced, is that when you are conditioned your entire life to view sex in this explicitly negative way, that's a very difficult mindset to simply flip a switch and turn off the moment that you meet somebody in an altar and say, I do. And what it leads to is all kinds of intimacy issues inside the marriage relationship, which oftentimes can only begin to be dealt with and healed from through, you know, working that out with a counselor or therapist. That's the prudish view. The pagan view on the other side uh, of the spectrum, I don't think this one needs a ton of explanation, it doesn't see sex as fundamentally dirty or shameful. It sees it just fundamentally as an appetite, and that's all it is. It's just an appetite, and like every other appetite, when you feel a desire for it, you seek to fulfill it. This is the probably the... I, I think it's safe to say that this mindset is becoming more and more common the more that we become secular as a society. And what's really fascinating, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. The way that we're beginning to view sex now, if you want to find out... Um, where that, what that leads to, just teleport back in time 2,000 years ago, because in so many ways, we're just becoming the Roman Empire all over, which, interestingly enough, of course, was the, the culture and the time and the place when Christianity got off the ground and took its first steps. In the Roman Empire, uh, Romans simply viewed, this was classic Greco-Roman culture, it just viewed sex, it's not a big deal, it's just an appetite. It's just like food, water, sleep, you feel a desire for it, you seek to fulfill it in any way you see fit. And so, uh, I say that to say, to kind of bottom line this, the the prudish view says, sex is bad, so kill your passions. The pagan view says, sex is just an appetite, so follow your passions, who cares? What the Bible says, and more specifically, what Jesus himself says, uh, explicitly here but elsewhere, is that both of those views of sex are wrong for the same fundamental reason. They both have, actually and ironically, too low a view of sex. Let me say that one more time. The prudish and pagan view of sex are both wrong in that they have too low a view of sex. The prudish view fails to recognize its goodness. The pagan view fails to recognize its power. Now, I've said all this to say, uh, in this passage, Jesus is not saying, don't look at another person with sexual desire. That's not what he's saying, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible speaks extremely positively about sexual desire. It teaches, among other things, that God invented it and gave it to us as a gift. In Genesis chapter 2, one of the first scenes that we have is of naked Adam singing a love song over naked Eve. There's an, Like I just mentioned moments ago, there's an entire book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon that is an explicit, barefaced, rejoicing in the sexual love between a husband and a wife, you get over in, into the New Testament and, and Paul writing to the Corinthians just in a way that I think we take for granted how much this has shaped Western society. Paul wrote to married couples and said, wives, your, hus- your, your body does not belong to you, it belongs to your husband. And husbands, your body does not belong to you, it belongs to your wife. We take for granted exactly how radical that is because again, in the Roman Empire, It was thought that the wife was the the legal property of the husband. But in Roman society, you only viewed your wife as basically the person that was necessary for helping you continue your family, predominantly through hopefully giving you sons. It was expected in Roman society, that the man would look for sexual satisfaction outside of the home. And that was just what it was. If a woman did that, she was completely ostracized. But for a man, it was totally excused. Completely over against that, Paul wrote to husbands and said, "You do your body does not belong to you when you enter into the marriage covenant. It belongs then to your wife. And he tells husbands and wives, if you decide to separate and take a break from physical intimacy for a time for the sake of prayer and fasting, go for it. But don't let that period of time lasts too long before you come back together, all right? My point is, if you you want to believe that the Bible speaks negatively of sexual desire, there there are plenty of verses, plenty of stories, and entire books that you need to completely surgically remove from the Bible in order to arrive at that conclusion. So the Bible doesn't say, kill your passions because sex is dirty. It also does not say, follow your passions because sex is just an appetite. What the Bible does say, and this is Jesus' whole point here, is channel your passions because sex is unbelievably powerful and it is to be respected as such. So if sex is not, pardon me, if lust is not just sexual desire, then what exactly is it? If that's what what it's not, what according to Jesus is it? I'm going to answer that question two ways and then we'll conclude by talking about how we can be free of it. So first off, here's what lust is. The first answer to that question is our next idea. Lust is an impersonal desire. The overall idea here, lust is an impersonal desire that objectifies another human being without a a total commitment of your whole person to that person. In, In verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. right, when Jesus says here, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, he's of course thinking of religious people who have heard and lived by the Ten Commandments all their lives. He's saying, you've heard that if you're married and you don't cheat on your wife, then you have obeyed the sexual ethic. However, I'm going to give you a far more comprehensive understanding than that. And and Jesus chases this by saying, uh, I tell you, Any man who looks at a woman. Now let me just pause and and be really clear here. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, any man who looks at another woman. He also does not say, any man who looks at another wife. The reason I want to point this out is because for whatever reason, a lot of people in our culture have this idea that as long as you do not cheat on your spouse or you don't help somebody else cheat on their spouse, then you're in the clear. That simply does not meet Jesus' standard here. What Jesus is saying here is that if you want sex with someone with, to whom you are not married, someone that you have not committed your entire self to, that, by Jesus' definition, is lust. Now, let, let me ask a, a question that maybe a couple of generations ago I wouldn't even feel the pressure to answer, but I, I feel like I'm doing you a disservice if I don't answer it now. Why does this matter? What I'm asking is, why does it matter to God? Uh, about three years ago, I was listening to a, a, um, a teaching on the Christian view of sexuality. And uh, I don't even remember the content of the teaching. All I remember it was, the, it was the title. It had a really grabby title to it. And the title of the message was, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? That's a valid question. And it's one that, um, in my experience, just meeting with people you know, one-on-one over the last decade of ministry... It's a question that people are increasingly wondering about both uh, in and outside the church. And so it's, uh, to me, if we want to communicate in a way that's helpful to people, uh, we have to address it. We have to wrestle with it. So, so the question is, why does this matter to God? Why is this a part of the Sermon on the Mount? Why is this something that God saw fit to speak to, knowing how challenging it would be for so many cultures? And here's the overall answer to that. And then, then I'll, I'll walk through this. <clears throat> the reason this matters to God is because according to the Bible, sex is an integrative act that involves the whole person. Not just the physical part of who you are, but all the immaterial parts of who you are that the Bible refers to as your soul. Let me say it again. The reason this matters to God is because sex is an integrative act that involves the whole person. And as designed by God, what sex fundamentally is, it's one human being's way of saying to another human being, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Any expression of sexuality outside of that context will lead to what it is. It's inviting disintegration into your soul because according to Jesus, it's a viola- it, it is a violation of your design. Now, if you think through this understanding of sex, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but if you think through this understanding of sex, this is, is why both the prudish and the pagan view of sex is wrong because they're both attempting, this is going to sound strange, but I'll walk through it again, so f- follow me. What the, what the pagan and prudish views of sex are both trying to do is separate the soul from the body, and you can't do that. By God's design, you can't do that. What I mean by that, uh, the, the prudish viewpoint says Let's just have a platonic relationship. Let's not get sex involved at all because the spirit is good, but the body and its desires are, are base, and they're dirty, and they're kind of shameful and wrong. What that is, it's, a, it's an attempt to split up the body and the soul. The pagan view of sex, however, uh, basically says, um, I'd like to have sex with you. I just don't want to get married to you. Now, what, what you're really saying there, what, what that mindset is really fundamentally about is, it's, it's saying, I want to be physically one with you, but I still want to maintain control of my life. So I want to be naked and vulnerable with you physically, but I don't want to be naked and vulnerable with you emotionally and psychologically and mentally and financially and personally and holistically. It, it's a mindset that says, I'll give myself to you physically, but only physically. I, I withhold every other part of who I am. And what that is, again, it's simply an attempt to split the body and the soul. Not only do we have, according to the Bible, um, this idea that that's, that's incredibly destructive to human beings, but even modern, modern neurological research has backed that up. I remember I was assigned a book when I was um, completing my degree at Moody called Hooked that looked at this idea. And the authors Joe McElhaney and Frida Bush um, put it this way. They said another critical finding of the neuroscience research is that sex cannot be dismissed as an activity with little or no impact on the person as a whole. We know sex involves the entire individual, the whole person. Perhaps the most damaging philosophy about sex in recent years has been the attempt to separate sex from the whole person. Neuroscientific evidence has revealed this approach to be not only false, but also dangerous. What they're saying here, completely against the grain of of the way that modern culture approaches sex, what they're saying is that you cannot treat sex like an appetite or an activity that has no impact on who you are as a whole. So with all of this in mind, let's go back to what Jesus is saying here. Here's what he's saying, if, if you were to paraphrase it. He's saying, if you're not married and you look to another person and you say, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to commit myself to you in marriage, what you're saying is, I want you to give yourself to me physically, but I'm unwilling to entrust all of who I am to you. And so here's kind of the irony, uh, that prudishness and paganism, in their attitude towards sex, what they both have in common is they both fail to see sex as an integrative thing. And, And it's funny because people in those camps... They denounce each other, they hate each other, they write articles about each other, but they they both, what they share in common is that they fail to see that they're trying to separate what God says is meant to be brought together. And according to the Bible, when those two things, the body and the soul, are brought together in the context of marriage, then and only then can sex become not just a powerful thing, but but a profoundly healing thing. I want to share another quote with you. This is from a Canadian psychiatrist named John White, who said, Immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies sex can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It is healing if it's the concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship. So it only makes sense that sexual relations be confined to marriage. For mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment but the delicate fabric of a lifetime's weaving. What he's saying there is that if sex is the embodiment of the vulnerability and the commitment that the rest of your relationship is marked by, then and only then, it can be a profoundly healing experience because, uh, like I said moments ago, sex by God's design was given to people as one human being's way of saying to another human being, I belong Completely and exclusively to you. And according to Jesus, any expression of sexuality outside of that context is destructive and damaging to a human soul. So first off, sex is, uh, lust is rather, according to Jesus, it's an impersonal desire. But secondly, and this will be the last uh, big idea I offer you today, uh, lust is also an inordinate desire. Uh, And I want to focus specifically at verse 28 here, where Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her. Uh, This was really surprising to me and and was very expansive in in my understanding of exactly what Jesus is warning about here. And when I'm done walking us through this idea, I think uh, that if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, nobody is beyond what Jesus is talking about here. The, the word that Jesus uses when he talks about lust, uh, it's a word that's found, to my knowledge, it's used over 60 times in the New Testament. And what's really interesting is when you look at all the ways and the places that it shows up, it, the vast majority, like more than 90% of the time, the word, does ha- it, it has absolutely no sexual connotation to it. The Greek word Jesus uses here that tra- that's translated lust, you may have heard me talk about this before, it's the Greek word epithumia. Which basically means an an over desire or an inordinate desire or an idolatrous desire. It means you're taking something that's otherwise good, but you're trying to get from it what you can only get from God. And to me, this understanding of of lust, of lust, it, it it helps explain a lot about what we see in our culture. First and foremost, it explains why we write so I mean when you look around at the way modern culture, modern secular culture talks about sex or thinks about sex. If you really start to pay it this week, if you decide to do this, to really listen to to all the songs that we write about relationships, romantic love, and specifically sex. If you look at the songs we write about that, if you look at the books we write about that, if you look at uh, the movies we write about that, the way that that shows up in advertising and entertainment and social media you can't say that secular culture is not religious. It's almost, I think it's appropriate to say that the real religion of modern secular culture is sex. We're obsessed with it. You know, if, if you were born into a different culture and you teleported here, I think it would be the first thing that just grabs you. And to me, what Jesus is explaining here is why that is. It explains why we're so driven by it as a culture. It explains why it's almost this unspoken given that, you know, without even saying it out loud, a lot of people go through life with this kind of unconscious assumption that of course life can't be worth living unless you're getting it. It's because, like Jesus says here, we're trying to get something out of it that only God can give us. Now, now, here's what this means, and when I say that this is, this is kind of, uh, this nails everybody to the wall, here's what, here's what this means, this word that Jesus uses here for lust. What it means is that you can be living a, a squeaky clean life on the surface, just like the Pharisees were. Yet, if in your heart you've, you've, you've kind of told yourself, maybe you've never said this out loud, but if only in your heart you've told yourself that if someone would just love you and you could, you know, you, you could have this perfect marriage with this perfect family and these perfect kids and then you could finally be happy, and then you could finally be whole, and then you'd finally be healed, and then your life would be worth living, and then your, your, your life could really begin, if that mindset, if that, if that doesn't sound sexual in nature at all, but even if that mindset exists in you, then according to Jesus, you're guilty of lust, and you are exactly as guilty of lust as someone who's living in obvious, overt sexuality, uh, sexual immorality, rather. I say this to say, and maybe this is true of you as well, my whole life I've understood Jesus' words in this little section to be speaking against even sexually fantasizing about another person, and I want to be crystal clear. Jesus certainly is speaking to that, but what, I, what I'm inviting you to consider here is that Jesus is speaking to so much more than that. He's talking about simply looking at another person and asking them to be what only God can be for you. And as painful as this is to admit And again, I I just ask yourself, search yourself and see if this isn't true for you. But, But with this understanding of lust, that we're simply looking at another person and asking them to be for us when only God can be for us, I think if we got honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that so many of the issues that we have in our relationships have nothing to do with what other people might be doing or not doing and everything to do with this desire that exists in us. Right, in, in every marriage ceremony that I officiate, I always make a point to tell couples on their wedding day, I go through Ephesians chapter 5, and I point out that before, in Ephesians chapter 5, before Paul tells husbands and wives what their relationships need to look like with each other, he tells them what their relationships need to look like with Jesus. And the principle there is that the strength of our relationship with Jesus will, will determine the strength of every other relationship we have. And the reason for that is because until we learn to get our needs met in Jesus, we will go through life demanding somebody else meet those needs for us, which another human being simply cannot do. And what I suspect most people do is they go through life hopping from one relationship to the other always convinced that people aren't treating me right and they're not respecting me and they're not supporting me and they're not understanding me when what Jesus would say is that that is actually coming from inside the house. And the reason behind so much of the turmoil we experience in our relationships is because we have been deeply unfair to the people God has placed in our lives because we have asked them to give us something that no human being can. And whether we realize it or not, we are completely dominated by this inordinate desire that Jesus calls Lust. Now, like I said, when, you've, when you understand lust that holistically, I don't know that anybody doesn't struggle with this. And so the question is what can be done about it? And I want to offer you two answers to that question based on Jesus' words here one is practical, and then one is a principle. <clears throat> and then we'll be done. First off, the practical. The practical advice that Jesus gives us, this is real heavy real heavy, but the practical advice that Jesus gives us in dealing with lust is found when you simply zoom out from what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus says in this passage is, if your eye or your hand is the catalyst through which lust enters into your, your person, your soul, he says, G- go ahead and just gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, because it's better to lose those body parts than to be thrown into Hell. This is one of the most famously jarring statements of Jesus. Uh, Certainly jarring for modern people, but I I just want to point out, I think this, if anything, would have been even grabbier to the people who heard this teaching live 2,000 years ago. Because the word, Jesus could have used a number of different words when he says it's better to lose that body part than your whole body to be thrown into hell. There's a number of words Jesus could have used for hell here. He chose the word Gehenna. Maybe you've heard this before. Gehenna was a word for hell in Jesus' day. Don't get me wrong there. However, Gehenna, as you may be aware, was also a literal physical place in Jesus' day. Uh, Jesus was a master teacher who was so great at, at vividly capturing people's attention and instilling a sobriety in his people. This is just another example of that. What, what Gehenna was, it was a, basically a landfill outside of Jerusalem, where people would throw things that were decaying or could no longer serve the purpose for which they were designed, and it was lit on fire. So Gehenna was this, this continually growing trash heap that was perpetually on fire. It was always burning, uh, but, but, but never fully consumed, and no matter how much you put into it, it was never full. Jesus is saying, it's better that you cut off your hand or gouge out your eye than, than to let lust do its thing in your life and be thrown into Gehenna and therefore have Gehenna thrown into you. Now, I just want to be real clear here. Here's what Jesus is not saying before anybody spirals into, you know, condemnation today. Jesus is certainly not saying that, that sexual immorality is, is the unpardonable sin. And if you have ever struggled with it or you, you ever struggle with it again in the future, then you you know you got a ticket punch for hell and there's no hope for you. Not, we know that because not only is that the opposite of the gospel, but, but even more to me, more importantly than that, we're given in the gospel accounts specific, we're given numerous examples of how Jesus dealt with people who were caught in sexual immorality. And it is incredibly comforting the way Jesus dealt with them. You talk about uh, the woman uh, at the well. In John chapter four, you talk about the prostitute that anointed Jesus' feet, washed his feet with her hair, interrupting his meeting with a religious official. You talk about the way Jesus interacted with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus was incredibly clear in calling those people out of that lifestyle. However, he was abundantly gracious with them, abundantly kind, so gentle with them in a a society that offered no grace whatsoever. Jesus refused to condemn them. He simply called them out of that lifestyle. So what, what Jesus is saying here when he's saying that you should be, it's better to lose your body parts than to be thrown into Gehenna, Jesus is saying that lust is, is it's such a powerful force that if you do not deal with it, it will spread decay and destruction in your life and it will light you on fire with a fire that will always consume but never be fulfilled. He's saying if you don't deal with this as strictly as you need to, it's going to change you. And again, Modern research backs that up. I know this makes everybody super uncomfortable, but how can you not talk about it in this teaching? Pornography. It is a well-documented fact that consuming pornography changes how the consumer of pornography views other people. It, 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 it teaches us to become this kind of people that Jesus is warning us about here that objectifies other human beings. And rather than seeing them as men and women created in the image of God that are worthy of our respect and love and service and admiration, it teaches us to view other people as objects that are intended for our pleasure. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That if you do play around with this, to the degree that you entertain it, it will spread decay and destruction in your life. It will turn you into a living Gehenna that is always consuming but never fulfilled. Extremely sobering. But the first and most practical step in dealing with lust is simply seeing what Jesus is calling us to see here. That this is not something to kid around with. That this is deadly serious and it will spread destruction and decay in our lives. All that being said, let me pivot and say this. I went to Christian private school first through 12th grade. I have heard more than my fair share of teachings on sexual immorality. I've heard some really good ones. I've heard some really bad ones, but in and through all of them, here's what I've learned. Beating people over the head with the teaching about sexual immorality is the easiest thing in the world for a pastor to do. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. You can make everybody feel condemned. You can make everybody feel ashamed. And I just want to be clear here. That is so not my heart because it is so obviously not God's heart as revealed in scripture. It's not Jesus' heart as revealed in the gospel accounts. So in saying all this today, I just, please see my heart here. I'm not unaware of the fact that this is an incredibly painful subject that brings all kinds of what are probably unhealed wounds to the surface in people's lives. And so if, if everything that I've said up to this point, if, if what this has done is brought to the surface kind of some undealt with festering wounds in your life that, that leave you feeling shameful, you know, that leave you feeling dirty, that leave you feeling condemned, then, then this last part is for you. What I'm going to end with is explaining what I am convinced is the only way to be free of the power that lust so effortlessly has on the human heart. Here it is. Over and over throughout the New Testament, of all of the images that, that's assigned to Jesus, all of the images that we're invited to understand Jesus through, Among them all, we're told that Jesus is the bridegroom. And what that means, you see this throughout the Gospels, you see this actually in Revelation. It's one of the final pictures that the Bible leaves us with, is that we, his people, the ones who who simply give their life to Jesus, we are his bride. Now, it's such a powerful imagery that the Bible sets before us, because especially being a married man, it it brings me right back to, to my wedding day. Because when Jesus says he's the bridegroom, he's not just saying that he's like your husband in general. He's saying he's like your husband on the wedding day. And I can't think about that, and I don't think anybody can think about that, without going to a wedding mentally. And I remember when I, on my wedding day, I remember when I was at the altar and uh, and Katie came out and I locked eyes with her, and I immediately was brought to tears because of how just, just all of these emotions welling up in the surface. First and foremost, I was completely captured. I mean, comp- like just pierced with how beautiful she was to me in that moment. And then with that, I was so honored that she would be willing to stand in an altar and make a commitment to me before God and man. So thankful that God had given me a woman like that. So excited about the life that we're getting ready to start together. And all of that and so much more is implied in this metaphor in scripture that Jesus is the bridegroom and you, the moment that you give your life to him, are his bride. The question I wanna put before you today as we get ready to close, and we're almost at the end here, so please lean into this. The question I wanna put before you today is do you, do you really believe, I'm not talking about just in an intellectual way, do you actually believe that God sees you and he thinks about you and he beholds you in that way? Because the promise of the gospel is that in Jesus, he does. And I don't know that there is any way for the power of lust to be broken in our lives apart from understanding this. Because according to Jesus, we just talked about this moments ago, all all lust fundamentally is, when you boil it down to its essence, there's a reason that the New Testament refers to it as idolatry. All lust is, is it's one human being's attempt to try to get from another human being what can only be found in God. And most of us would never say this out loud because it would make us feel weak and it would shatter the self-image that we so desperately try to maintain of being a strong, independent person that doesn't need anybody. I think if we got real honest, just us and God, we would admit that in every one of our hearts, there is this deep-seated belief that if that there's this perfect person out there. And if that perfect person would just come along and perfectly love me, and, and, and perfectly understand me and perfectly respect me and perfectly support me, then whatever I intuitively know is wrong with me would be healed. And what Jesus Christ is saying when he calls himself the true bridegroom, he's saying he is that one person for you. He and he alone is that one person for you, that he and he alone has the kind of love for you that can actually heal your heart of what we all know is wrong with it. And the moment that you and I give our lives to him, regardless of the life that we've lived and regardless of the present struggles that we still have and will wrestle with from now until glory, that the moment you give your life to Jesus, you in that moment are beautiful in the eyes of your heavenly father, as beautiful as a bride is to a groom. Experiencing that kind of love is the key breaking the power of lust because to the degree that you experience that, sex loses the ability to run your life. It loses its hold over you. If you're single, then experiencing that love will, on the one hand, it'll keep you from from saying yes to the wrong relationships or no to the right relationships. And if you desperately want to be married but you're not, it will keep you from, from, from spiraling into bitterness and despondency. But if you're already married, It's experiencing that kind of love and and only experiencing that kind of love that will keep you from crushing your spouse with the weight of your expectations because you'll know that you already have the perfect spouse that can love you in a way that your soul most needs in Jesus. But either way, regardless of of what we bring to the table this morning, what Jesus' words invite us to come to terms with is that until we have Jesus as the lover of our souls, there will be a fire in our lives. And that fire will never be satisfied until our hearts are satisfied in Jesus. I want to call the worship team up, and, and, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> Scripture says, among other things, that, that we are we're created in the image of God, in the image of a God who is himself relational. And that means that, that deep in our DNA, we are relational beings. And what that means is that regardless of what you believe, regardless of of your stance toward God and Christianity and church and the Bible and all of that, I know without knowing you that every single one of us has at least these three things in common. First off, every human heart has a need for somebody to be vulnerable with us. And the gospel says that only Jesus Christ has been perfectly vulnerable with you, willing to be stripped naked and nailed to a cross on your behalf. Secondly, every human heart has a deep need for someone else to commit to us. And again, the gospel says that only Jesus has been perfectly committed to you to the point that he was willing to lay his life down for you even before you had acknowledged him, even while you were living as his enemy. But thirdly, and, and, and maybe most importantly, every human heart has this deep need to be fully known and fully loved, to have someone from outside of us look into the depths of who we are and find us beautiful. I've heard it said, and I completely agree, that to be loved without being known is superficial. It's meaningless. That's why no no matter how many fans we get, no matter how many followers we get on social media, it it doesn't matter how much applause we get from the people around us, because we'll just go through life kind of haunted by this idea that if they really knew who I was, They wouldn't think as highly of me as they do. So to be loved without being known, it's meaningless. Conversely, to be known and to not be loved, that is the greatest fear of the human heart. The idea that somebody could see deeply into who you are and reject you as you are, there is nothing more painful for a human being to experience than that. And I say that knowing that some of us have experienced that maybe in previous relationships or maybe simply in the home that you grew up in. That's the kind of thing that wounds you probably for the entirety of your life here. But I say all this to say that to be fully known and to be fully loved at the same time, that's life-changing. There is nothing that will transform a human heart so holistically as that. And that is exactly the kind of love that Jesus has for you. It's love that beholds you, that sees you, that knows you better than you know yourself and yet loves you all the same and declares you righteous and declares you beautiful the moment that you give your life to him. There is nothing that will transform us like that. And so my hope today in and through this teaching as painful as some parts of it might be that you and I would come to know that love and experience that love and build our lives on the firm foundation of that love because it and it alone can heal us like nothing else. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, this is such a, um, it's a volatile subject. It's one that tends to bring to the surface a lot of feelings that maybe we ourselves don't even understand. And it's it's a subject that I think is painful because if we got honest, every one of us has gotten it wrong. But my prayer today, this morning, is that your love and your finished work, on our behalf, first and foremost would give us the security to face ourselves, to get real honest about what's actually going on in our lives, uh, honest with what's going on in our souls, honest with how we have entertained the presence of things that you say can't be bargained with and can't be reasoned with and simply need to be driven out. But in that, Jesus, your word reminds us over and over again that we cannot heal ourselves. We can't purify ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need you. And so as we face ourselves, please teach us to face you, the true bridegroom, who sees absolutely everything there is to see about us, all the things that we try to hide from everybody else, all the things that we try to hide from ourselves. You see it all, and you're just waiting for us to come home. You're just waiting for us to repent. You're just waiting for us to come to you, on bent knees and open hands, asking you to do what only you can do, which is heal us with your love. So please do it this morning. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we ask these things. God's people said, Amen. amen.